This is KAOS. You and I are listening to Chaos in Australia. Let's go to the telephones now and take a request. Yes, Billy. You hear radio waves in your head. Ah, is there a request that you have tonight for chaos? Radio waves. The atmosphere is thin and cold. The yellow sun is getting old. The ozone overflows with radio waves. Astrophysics brings the news. The rays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves. Radio waves. Radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and the title of this week's episode is Citizen Science and Radio Galaxy Zoo with Dr. Julie Banfield from Castro. Sorry, Sorry, there are no aliens at home today. And what is the radio window? Today is 31st of August 2016. Each session, we'll have co-presenters. We'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy. We'll have a news roundup, a history and theory session from Nadezhda, and we'll talk to her very soon. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. So, as usual, we'll begin with our routine of crossing straight over to Tver in Russia and speaking with Dr. Nadezhda Sherbikov. Hello, Nadezhda. Hello, Brendan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Nadezhda. What have you got for us this week? It is very tempting to talk about the SETI signal that was discovered at the Ratan 600 radio telescope in the Caucasus. But I'll let you just report on it briefly in the news. You know very well, Brendan, that I think this SETI business is largely a waste of time. But there is a benefit in that we have developed better algorithms and control systems for radio telescopes. So maybe it's a good thing, but basically it's pretty silly, this alien business. Now... Last week we spoke of pulsars, neutron stars and ballerinas and the great achievements of your wonderful radio astronomer Bruce Slee. And this week I will explain about optical and radio windows and why we put some of our precious instruments up into the very dangerous environment of space. Okay, thank you Nadezhda. We'll cross back to you later, and I'll look forward to hearing 
all about it. Bye for a little while. Okay, we'll talk soon. Our special guest today is Dr Julie Banfield from Castro. Hello, Julie. Hello, Brendan. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Julie Banfield from Castro. So tell us about your background, Julie, and how you initially became interested in science and then involved in astrophysics and then involved at Castro. So I grew up in a small town in Canada, just outside of Toronto, Canada, and I was lucky enough to live in a small town where I could actually look at the sky at night and see many, many stars, and I got to see the northern lights many times, um, shooting stars, the Milky Way, um, just spectacular, and I think that's one of the reasons why I got into astronomy is that I just had that ability that I could just walk out my back door and I could look up into the wonders of the universe. I wasn't really good at science in school. I was just there, just went about my day as every kid does, go to school, come home. And it wasn't until I went into university and decided that if I'm going to go to school, I need to do something that I enjoy. And I enjoy looking at the sky and I've never looked back. So that's sort of how I got into astronomy is just picked up one of those books that the university send out and said, I'm going to give it a try. And then I went and did my PhD in Calgary, so the Rocky Mountains in Canada, doing radio astronomy. And then from there, I moved to Australia, down to Sydney, to work at the Australian Telescope National Facility, um, specifically on the ASCAP Evolutionary Map of the Universe Project. And then I made my way to the capital in Canberra, and that's where I am today. Fantastic. Okay, Julie, can you tell us about your PhD thesis and your subsequent research? Sure. So my PhD research was mainly on magnetism, magnetic fields, and their importance in the universe. So just to put it into context, the Earth has a magnetic field, and if the magnetic field wasn't there, then we basically, life couldn't evolve as we know it on the Earth. Um, So magnetic fields are extremely important, in particular for life on Earth, formation of planets, um, how galaxies form, as well as how the universe forms. And so my PhD was in trying to understand the evolution of magnetic fields to go from early universe to planets. So that's sort of what my work involved in. I got to travel all over the world to the very large array in New Mexico to get some of my data. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. um, My work now has sort of progressed away from that. And I'm involved in the citizen science project Radio Galaxy Zoo where it's an online interactive space where anybody, doesn't matter your background, so you don't have to be a scientist. We teach you the things that we do every day, and you can go online and be a scientist and do science with us, look at the stars, look at the galaxies, and then we take all of that data and we write papers and publish the work and get involved in TV and just get people interested in science. That's a fantastic approach, Julie, because there's just so much data now that you really need those citizen scientists to help you pre-sift all the data. Yeah, it's actually rather unbelievable that the amount of data that we have coming in, there was an estimate somebody told me once where 98% of the data that we are collecting will never be seen by the human eye. Wow. 
And that's just remarkable. And astronomy is a very visual science. And to get the most out of it, you need eyes on the sky. Humans are really good at pattern recognition. And just by showing images, we're actually able to sift through the data at a much faster rate. And as a result, we can find really cool and interesting things that have never been seen before. And the data that we have in Radio Galaxy Zoo has been in the archive for over 20 years. And we're constantly finding new things that have never been seen, observed, analyzed before. And we wouldn't be able to do this without people participating in our project. Yes, and I saw that there was a rare, huge galaxy cluster that was discovered by some Radio Galaxy Zoo citizen scientists. Yes, that's right. Within the first week after the website went live, we had two citizen scientists who discovered this object and posted it onto one of our forums. So that's another great thing about the site is that if you have a question, you can just post it there and scientists will answer your question. Um, and this is how it happened is they posted something and said, this is really odd. What's going on? And then the scientists in the group just started working with the citizen scientists to look at these images and analyze it. And it turns out to be one of the largest radio galaxies currently known at this time. And it's falling into a cluster of galaxies. And our current methods of detecting this type of galaxy just aren't good enough to find things that are this big in the universe. And this is where the power of eyes on the sky and pattern recognition come in is that People are just so much better than machines at this point that, you know, we can still do great science. Yes, our algorithms are good, but a human eye is great at detecting those pattern shifts. Exactly. That's exactly it. And it just shows us how things have changed since the days of Archimedes when he said, Eureka, I have found it. Now the catchphrase is, oh, that's unusual. Exactly. And that's pretty much what they said on the on the forum. Very good. Now let's go back to base, Julie. Can you tell us where and what is Castro? Castro is the Australian Research Council. Every year they put a call out for centers of excellence across the nation and researchers get together and they put in proposal for funding. And the Australian Research Council said that astronomy and astrophysics should have a center of excellence. And so it's called the ARC Center of Excellence. Excellence for All Sky Astrophysics. So we're moving into the age of new telescopes, new technologies. We're able to image the sky faster. And this center brings together all of the major scientists and engineers together in one organization spread out across the country uh, to tackle these problems that, and issues that these new telescopes and new technologies are bringing forward for us to image the sky. Great. So I know that Castro is doing some wide field astronomy. Now that brings in an awful lot of data. How are your Castro researchers handling that data? That's a good question, and I don't think we have an answer for that at the moment. So a lot of the wide field telescopes, so the Murchison Wide Field Array, as well as the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, are bringing in enormous rates of data per, per second. And currently, my understanding is that data just we can't store it at this moment because it's just too much that's coming through. So it ends up getting sent to the supercomputing facilities in Western Australia. So that's the Palsy Supercomputing Centre where it gets analysed on the fly and the data gets sent back across country to the major university centres. Okay, Murchison and SKA are the big ticket items at the moment. How are they going? 
Oh, they seem to be going pretty pretty good, pretty positive. Lots of excellent science that's come out of it. So the Murchison Wildfield Array or the MWA has been producing a lot of really interesting science. New things are showing up there as well. The SKA is moving along, but we're still in the Pathfinder stages. So that's the Australian Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder. I think it's going pretty well. We're seeing images. The technology's working. Everything's going to plan, I think. So that's a really good positive thing to come from the funding that the government's given us to do the work that we want to do. Very good. And what's your role at Castro? What does your working week look like? (laughs) (laughs) My, My working week's pretty intense. I think I spend a lot of my time working with Radio Galaxy Zoo, so interacting with the public on science, answering questions, getting people involved. And then I also supervise a lot of students in different research projects. And then I try to find time to write up findings. So I'm in the process of writing up another Radio Galaxy Zoo paper on a new finding that we have. Um, These are called Green Dragons. So look out for that soon. (laughs) Uh, Look, there's always something to look forward to. There's so much happening. Oh, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of new things that are coming out, even just from data that's 20 years old. It, it's spectacular. Yeah, so that's my day. And then sometimes I participate in Scientists in Schools, which is a program that invites scientists into classrooms around the nation to basically get people interested in science, get excited about science. You don't have to love it, but just to get excited about it. You don't need to be an astronomer. You don't need to be a doctor. We're just there to get children to start asking questions and look at their surroundings and just understand the world that we live in. And I think it's a very rewarding experience to be able to do that, and it's a great program. That's our mission here at Astrophys. We just want to normalise science. Yeah, we don't want to make it too complicated for people. We want to bring science to the people so that they can understand that it's not this complicated thing and that it's actually really fun and exciting and enjoyable. Fantastic, Julie. I got a chance to go to Uluru to do the Astronomer in Residence program. So that's another program that Castro runs. And so they send an astronomer to live in Uluru for two weeks um, and interact with the public and do star tours and talk about science. And the skies up there were just spectacular, just unbelievable. The sky in the Southern Hemisphere is spectacular, just beautiful. What a way to do it, Julie, because all of those grey nomads who travel around Australia, when they call in and get a bit of citizen science at Uluru, then they go home and talk to their grandchildren. Exactly. That's great. That's your outreach work. Castro obviously is on a mission there. Can we finish off now with your personal rant or rave or obsession with astrophysics? (laughs) I love the universe. It's a very mysterious place. And it doesn't show you everything, and you have to look hard to to find that crack in its shield to sort of start to understand it. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And some, some projects that you do, you might never see to its full end because it just takes a long time to get anywhere. And then there's projects that are really exciting, and the universe is like, surprise, here I am, and you can get into it and finish it in within a year. And that's those are the moments that keep you going to tackle these problems that the universe holds for us that just take so much longer um, to do. For example, gravity waves, how long it took them to build the instrument, and then they turn it on and it shows a spectacular result. And that's just amazing. Yes, beautiful work. 
it's excellent. It's breathtaking. And at the same time, I just you're lost for words at the great result that came out from it. It's just wonderful. I have two children. And so that poses a hard issue for me. I mean, I think it's great that they get excited and I can take them places. And Castro's really, really good at providing the opportunity and the funding for people with small children, whether male or female. I think that's that's excellent. So I'm heading off to Hobart in September. And I'm able to take my daughters with me because they provide childcare, which I think is really progressive. And is something that the rest of the community, I think, needs to begin to understand is that we're humans too. We have families and we have life outside of astronomy. And we're normal people just doing a job and having fun at it. And yeah, so I'm lucky enough to live in a time where this is available to me. And it's not the time of Ruby Payne Scott where she had some issues when she was having children and getting married. And this was in the 60s. So I'm extremely lucky to be at this point in my career at this time, at this exact moment where sort of everything has come together. And astronomy is turning out to be a really great science to get into and learn about the universe. I, th- I just think it's wonderful. I'm just really happy. And Excellent. I think that once I lose that happiness and that eagerness to go to work every day and look at the sky and observe at night, then maybe I'll have to think about doing something else. But right now, I just love it. I just love it. I love my job. I love where I live. I love my, love everything about it. (laughs) Fantastic, Julie. And it comes through in how you say it. You're obviously on a huge roll there and it is indeed a golden age for astrophysics. It's the perfect time. Lots of discoveries are just waiting to be made. And we have made a small amount of progress. I remember Ruby Payne Scott had to keep her marriage a secret just to keep her job with the CSIRO. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, she had to keep it secret and then she ended up being pregnant and then she had to quit her job. But CSIRO has come a long way and they've created the Ruby Payne Scott Award, which I was lucky enough to be successful in applying for that. And it lets people get back into work after going on leave, maternity leave and parental leave. So we have moved forward and it's really positive, positive changes. Yes, well, we did an episode on Ruby Payne-Scott earlier, and it was very interesting to discover that she developed that interferometer to look at the sun and catch the reflections off the ocean at Dover Heights and, yeah, get that interferometry technique happening. Yeah, she's an amazing woman. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. All right, excellent. Sounds good. That was Dr. Julie Banfield from Castro and the Radio Galaxy Zoo Citizen Science Project. So get into it. Get some citizen science happening. Do some work. It's fun and it's very important work. I won't even bother to make a tiny earl for you. Just go to Google and put in Radio Galaxy Zoo. It comes in as number one. Now, back to you, Nadeshda. The microphone is all yours. Thank you, Brendan. Now, it will be a very short report this week, Brendan, because I know you already have a very full show. Last week, it was neutron stars spinning as pulsars and the great achievement of your famous radio astronomer, Bruce Lee, who sadly passed away. This week, I'm briefly introducing the radio window. Then I'm going off On a little tangent, the radio window is a range of frequencies of electromagnetic radiation that the Earth's atmosphere lets through. The wavelengths in the radio window run from about 1 centimeter to about 
11 meter waves. Now, Brendan has kindly made a web page for the Astrophys podcast, which has a very nice diagram illustrating the optical and radio windows and what wavelengths penetrate our atmosphere and our ionosphere. It is at tinyearl.com forward slash astrophys. Astro, P-H-I-Z. Go and have a look. You see, our atmosphere and ionosphere is like a poorly constructed fence, which fortunately allows certain frequencies to penetrate and hit the ground, while other frequencies bounce off the ionosphere or are absorbed by the air or water molecules in our atmosphere. Which reminds me, Brendan, now, I think I will call this Sherbakov's Tangent. I, too, have seen dozens of stories about the recent discovery of a planet orbiting our closest neighbor, Proxima Centauri. And it is certainly very exciting and will remain so for quite some time, as scientists from all over the world strive to get more data about this planet. What annoys the hell out of me, so-called reputable space news outlets, like even space.com, cannot resist the temptation to put alien planet discovered in 48-point font. This is a ridiculous clickbait, Brendan. It's not an alien planet. It's just another planet out of a group of three and a half thousand that have been discovered using Doppler shift or the dimming technique. You see, if a planet orbits a star and passes in front of a star between the Earth and the star, the light from the star is slightly diminished. And fortunately, we have very accurate and sensitive instruments which now can detect even the slightest dimming effect. And by studying the light curves of distant stars, we can detect period dimming effects. Now, this planet around Proxima was discovered using the Doppler shift effect. You see, gravity is mutual, and a large mass, like a star, will pull a planet in orbit around the common center of mass. So even a small planet can make a large star wobble a tiny, tiny bit. And fortunately, we can detect that wobble in a periodic change in frequency of the starlight as the star is pulled one way or the other by the planet. Even our sun is pulled out of its place in the center of our solar system as a result of eight planets' gravitational force on the sun. So our sun, all stars with planets, and it seems most stars have planets, move around their barycenter. And there is a very nice simulation of our sun moving around its body center at tinyearl.com forward slash astrophysbarry. Astrophys, B-A-R-Y. That is simplifying it greatly, Brendan, but you get the idea. Now, I have also sent Brendan a link to a nice simulation of the Doppler effect. And it works on any device. Just go to tinyearl.com forward slash astrophysdoppler. That's it for this week, Brendan. I'll see you next week, and I am going to expand on those topics. 
next week. I have been very busy this week. Thank you, Nadezhda, I understand. And I promise we won't talk too much about aliens in other parts of the show. Sometimes, Brendan, I think you are very funny. Other times, not so much. Desvidaniya. Bye, Nadezhda. See you next week. Thank you very much. That was a wonderful Dr. Nadezhda Sherbakov. And now we cross over to Adelaide in Australia to talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave from Astroblogger. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very good, thank you. You mentioned that you've captured the conjunction of Venus and Jupiter. I did indeed. After last night seeing them 15 seconds through the cloud, we still had a lot of clouds this afternoon, but there was enough break in the cloud to be able to not only see Venus, uh, Jupiter and Mercury all together, I was able to get a couple of shots through the telescope too, although that was compromised by trees. Very good. And now I know that some of our listeners are keen astrophotographers. What equipment do you use for astrophotography? I have a variety of equipment. At the low end, I have a little point-and-shoot camera, uh, Canon Ixus, which is my go-to camera for a variety of just plain pointing things up at the sky and taking photographs. I also have a DSLR, which I don't use as much because I still have to buy a, a, a shutter release for it. Uh, this is the, the, the new fancy one where you couldn't use the old mechanical shutter releases. Yep. Uh, so you need a, 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 an electronic shutter release but of course it's an old model and they don't it's, it's hard to find the shutter release that will fit with this also it's a little bit noisy at, at, at high ISO levels so that's the advantage of having a DSLR is that you can go quite low with the electronic ISO levels but this one's a little bit noisy and so I find that it's it, for a lot of things if I just need to get out and shoot stuff straight away I'll use the little Canon rather than the DSLR because I've got to spend a lot more time getting the uh, getting the shots ready and so yeah, the DSLR I can go out there press a, a couple of pre- presets it'll take photographs whereas with the DSLR I'm going to get out set it onto a bulb setting and then mess around with the with the shutter and ISO settings until I get it roughly where I want it to be. But also, the problem with the DSLR also is it's a little bit heavy, and so it, it's, it will hang up my telescopes okay, but it's again, it takes a little bit of fiddling around to get it into the right spot. Yep. And of course, my other camera is a webcam, which I've uh, jigged up to be uh, an astrophotography camera, and I use that exclusively for planetary imaging. The amount of zoom you can get out of the Canon and the DSLR is small compared to the zoom that I can get out of the little webcam I've mostly Jupiter, Saturn, Mars and the phases of Venus my webcam the CCD cam is, is absolutely beautiful but that, that that has to be set into the telescope to do the photography so I've got I can take just raw shots of the sky with the Canon and the DSLR and you can do a wide range of things with little point and shoots for uh, through telescope stuff I can use the Canon or the DSLR uh, but if I want good quality planetary imaging and also the lunar imaging I use use the uh, I use the little uh, webcam. Very good Ian. Now we'll go through our usual routine. Can you give us a quick synopsis of what happened this week at uni? We did a, a, a few more experiments. We're, we're doing, as I, your listeners may know, we look at toxicity of a variety of compounds, herbs and liver cells as models for natural product toxicity and Alzheimer's disease. And so again, 
a lot of science isn't really exciting day to day. You've got a lot of uh, just hard yakka. You grow the cells, you put things in, you wait for them to die. Yep. But one of the honor students has, has succeeded in uh, getting toxicity to uh, one of our suspect plant compounds, and now we're really exploring that further and looking at its interaction with other drugs. Similarly, with the one of the lab groups is working on toxicity of analogs of N-methyl diaspartic acid and so bands do the ranging experiments and they've got to do a bit more work to get their accuracy and precision up but that's all that's all happening along and I also did an interview with RIOS TV for an upcoming series which I'll leave mysterious for you but uh, possibly by the end of the year you might see my face on RIOS TV uh, talking about science communication one form or another. Very good. We'll continue. We've got Dr. Elizabeth Tusker coming on the show next week because the internet lit up this week with news that a new planet, an exoplanet, had been found orbiting Proxima Centauri. Yeah, uh, that's really exciting news. Now, Elizabeth has already written an internet post uh, about A, B, uh, excited, not too excited. So I won't uh, cover a... Um, too much of that ground again because uh, she does, will do it so much better. But uh, I'd like to um, amplify on a couple of issues. One of the reasons we get excited by this is apart from the fact it's Earth-like, and I believe Elizabeth is going to cover what that means in detail, is that it's just a hop, skip and a jump away. At 4.26 light years, Proxima Centauri is the closest star to us and to have a uh, terrestrial planet... Uh, I think uh, a better term is tellurian because it gives us the idea that it, it's uh, sort of small and rocky without actually being something that looks like the Earth. It's, it means we, with, that, with the technology we have available, it's potentially visitable within the lifetimes of many of your, your listeners. Now, of course, this is amazingly technologically challenging. Uh, at the moment, our uh, two uh, speediest spacecraft, uh, Voyager 1 and the New Horizons Pluto probe, Pluto probe which is currently heading for a, a um, cubibelt object uh, which has uh, an undistinguished numeric appellation. Uh, if uh, either of those were actually pointed towards Oxalus and Poro, they'd get there in about 8,000. <laughs> I've got a major problem too, Ian, with this new planet. It doesn't orbit every 12 or so days, so you'd have a birthday every 12 days. You'd age very quickly on that planet. Uh, yes, you would, but then again, uh, you'd live to on the order of 200 years. So, I mean, who's complaining? <laughs> so the challenges are, uh, to get there are quite uh, quite. Uh, high. I mean, we have, first, we have to get up to a substantial portion of the speed of light. 10% of the speed of light, it would take us 42.6 years to get there, assuming we've almost got instantaneous acceleration. And acceleration. This is not going to happen, of course. Now, with our current fuels and methods, that's just not going to happen. Amongst other things, if you're going to take all the fuel, fuel with you, um, uh, excluding a Star Trek-style warp drive, which is fed by antimatter annihilation, the mass you'll have to take is is unfeasible. You'd need a need a rocket the size of a small moon to carry the fuel. You would need to get a um, a, a tiny probe to the uh, to Proxima Centauri. The two ways that have been posed that are, are reasonably feasible is to use a, something called a Bussard ramjet. That's where you use a, a spacecraft that has an electromagnetic scoop to scoop up interstellar hydrogen, feed a fusion drive, so you don't need to 
uh, carry fuel with you. Uh, potentially, you can get up to significant proportions of the speed of light, uh, accelerate and decelerate down, which is advantageous. However, the technical challenges of making such a um, such a device are enormous. The alternative way is to use star sails. Now, you've probably heard a bit about star sails in the past, where you use ultra-thin reflective mirrors, which use light pressure alone to accelerate. And, for example, the Planetary Society uh, has put up a couple of demonstrations, star sails, uh, to test the technology. Um, there's been some Russian activity in this sphere too. But again, there's, there's significant technical challenges there in the sense that we have to be able to reliably fold up the uh, star sail, deploy the star sail. It has to last for quite some time. And you have payload issues, of course, because your, the, your star sail is being propelled by light pressure alone. It can't take very large payloads. So that limits the sorts of things you can send out. Also, without some uh, tricky work, you can't actually decelerate it once you get to your, to your target. It'll just keep on zooming by. Um, what so, we do have at the moment, however, is something called the, um, the uh, uh, Breakthrough Star Shot, where what they're proposing to do is to make a horde of mini star sails, which they will use lasers to propel to 20% of the speed of light, uh, which would get to um, Alpha Cent uh, to Proxima Centauri in uh, a bit over 20 years. So that uh, would be within our lifetimes, potentially, although I'm going to be rather old. Um, again, yeah. while this is potentially feasible, there's enormous technical challenges to overcome. Um, one is, of course, uh, making the uh, mini um, payloads able to actually uh, locate any planet, focus on it, take photographs, and then send them back. Um, they have to do this with minute amounts, of, minute amounts of power. You could potentially use the star sail as a giant solar array and to power uh, these devices, but you have to use uh, tiny, tiny amounts of power to send signals over vast distances. Um, and then, of course, there's what happens if you hit a bit of space dust as, um, the, as uh, uh, Skylab, Mir, and the International Space Station all know, um, uh, even tiny bits of uh, space junk travelling at orbital speeds impacting can cause uh, significant damage and uh, potentially um, uh, mess you up quite a bit. When you're travelling at 20% of the speed of light, tiny bits of uh, grains of interstellar dust are going to have a significantly larger impact and so it's entirely possible that uh, just a single grain with a stellar dust could uh, completely uh, melt or vaporise your postage stamp-sized uh, probe. On the other hand, this is one of the reasons this, they're talking about sending a fleet of probes. If you send out 20 probes, then if you lose 19 of those probes, two still get there and send information back. And radio astronomers will do their contribution by building radio dishes that will get any information that's beamed back. So that's quite a challenge. That's going to take 20 years in itself, Ian. Yeah, well, the, the, the um, initial Starshot initiative, talk, uh, the Breakthrough Starshot initiative, talks about a 20-year timeline. Um, and, I mean, they are doing, as we speak, they're doing uh, tests of the technology uh, in order to determine exactly how feasible it is and what they uh, uh, need to um, do, uh, specifically around, at the moment, um, 
how do you protect your postage-sized um, spacecraft or postage-sized probes from interstellar dust? The, the more uh, protective material you put on them, the more the bigger star sailors need to haul it along. Um, so you 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 lose the advantage of having a tiny probe on on a on a uh, star sail. Yeah, so lots of work to be done, Ian. So what's up in the sky this week, Ian? What's up in the sky this week? Those of you who have been watching the uh, planet dance and have hopefully had some clear skies to see the close approach of uh, Jupiter and Venus. Uh, by the way, the, they won't approach that close for another 200 uh, until 2065. So that's a fair way off. Yep. Although, to be, to be fair... Um, most of us won't see that in the sense that at the moment the uh, the closest approach of uh, this current lineup occurred in the middle of the day, uh, so it was really difficult to see them uh, as close as they were. But uh, it won't happen again until uh, something as good as this won't really happen again until about uh, twenty sixty five in terms of Venus and Jupiter lining up. But the show's not over. Uh, if you if you're hanging out around the uh, evening twilight. You're now going to see um, Jupiter, Venus draw away from Jupiter. Before uh, uh, Venus was below Jupiter, now it's crossed over to be in front of Jupiter. And the, the very thin triangle that's uh, being made by Venus, uh, Jupiter and Mercury will start broadening out again. Uh, Mercury and Jupiter will continue heading towards the horizon. Um, uh, and and will, uh, but they'll still be uh, visible uh, in the early twilight uh, up until the uh, end of uh, end of uh, the week, um, but what's coming up will be quite nice uh, as too, as as the triangle increases on the third of September, uh, the crescent moon will be in the middle of the triangle. So you'll have um, Jupiter down below, Mercury off to one side, Venus above, and the thin crescent moon will be uh, growing with Earth shine smack in the middle of them, uh, depending where in the world you are. Well, some will be closer to um, to Venus, and some will be um, uh, it'll be closer to Venus, some further away. The next night, the thick crescent moon will be above the uh, triangle formed by these planets, and then it will head off, uh, heading towards the uh, triangle being formed by uh, Mars, Antares, and Saturn. And those of you who have also been following Mars and Antares. Um, Mars and Antares formed the line uh, earlier in the week and uh, post this broadcast you'll see it as a thin uh, isosceles, a thin triangle but as the days go by the triangle of Mars and uh, Saturn and Antares will, will become uh, longer and longer it will eventually become a, a nice isosceles triangle. A lot of astrophotographers will be very keen to capture that one Ian. Oh yeah, well look I've, I've got sitting uh, on, my, on my desk a whole range of photographs of um, of the of uh, Mars and uh, Saturn and Antares and Scorpio looking absolutely beautiful, and a couple where they look like look rubbish because the moon's in the middle of it um, that I've yet to put together, and uh, I'll, I'll I'll do that uh, hopefully this week and put that compilation together um, as a heads up for what's happening in the coming weeks. Mars is uh, is currently in the constellation Ophiuchus, as is Saturn, but it's heading towards the um, the gap between the tail of Scorpius, the Scorpion, and the spout of the teapot in Sagittarius. 
and it's going to come uh, uh, relatively close to some really rubbly nebulas and clusters. So uh, that's a heads up for something. I mean, I'll talk about that in a, a future broadcast. But just a heads up that you know, just because Venus and Jupiter were at their closest uh, on um, Sunday the 28th doesn't mean that, oh, okay, it's all over, we can go and not look at the sky again. There's still plenty of planetary action happening, and for the next couple of weeks, uh, it'll be pretty amazing. There's always something to look forward to. Now, yeah. Ian, have you got a tangent for us this week? Well, the tangent relates to um, Proxima Centauri. Yep. Because... Um, where do you think you'd see Proxima Centauri? In the Centaur constellation? Yes. It's part of the triple star system of Alpha and Beta Centauri, which is the uh, the red star which forms the uh, one of the two pointers that points to the Southern Cross. Yep. But where do you think it lies in relationship to the uh, uh, Alpha and Beta Centauri? No idea. Ian, tell us. Okay. Well, if you... Um, if you take your, take your cue from Alpha Crucis, which is a triple star, and you'd, uh, naively you'd expect that uh, Proxima Centauri would be pretty close to uh, Alpha and uh, Beta Centauri. You might need a telescope to see it um, glowing faintly next to the pair. But it's actually almost um, two to three degrees away. In so, fact, uh, so uh, if you look up at the uh, night sky tonight, and you'll see the pointers. Yep. And, and uh, the Alpha Centauri is very obvious. Is it's the orange one. The blue-white one is uh, Beta Centauri. If you look across to your uh, left or west uh, or um, eastwards from Alpha Centauri, you'll see a, a faint star, which delights in the name of Alpha um, Circinus. That's the brightest star in the constellation of the compass. Roughly in between those two, is where Proxima Centauri is. Now, Proxima Centauri is about magnitude of about 11, and so you're not going to see it with anything uh, like a, uh, a pair of binoculars, although uh, uh, the Proxima Centauri and Alpha Centauri will fit within a binocular field. You'll need a, a reasonable telescope in dark skies to be able to see it. But it, it really sits very far away from uh, Alpha Centauri. So what is the actual distance between them? Uh, it's about 0.2 of a light year. Yep. It, it, it's it's a substantially far away. In fact, there's some argument about whether or not Proxima is really part of the triple system, and it might simply be a, an independent star that just whose orbit just happens to look at the moment like it's part of Alpha and Beta. But, but we... it is a very, very wide double. Um, and if you were standing on Proxima um, uh, uh, Centauri B, uh, and assuming that you had an atmosphere that wasn't like Venus's, you, uh, if you were to try and look for uh, Alpha Centauri, they, you'd be able to see them as, as uh, see the as a pair as a really really bright star, but it wouldn't be dominating your skyline. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, that so sounds great, Ian. Some other things that people might be interested in is that even though we're um, being really excited by uh, the discovery of uh, this planet around Proxima Centauri. Uh, the uh, spacecraft Juno has actually done its first proper close approach to Jupiter. Uh, it's made another, a previous close approach to Jupiter, but this is the first time it's started with all the instruments turned on. Now, it'll take uh, a few days for the first data to come through, but this is the first time a spacecraft has come so screamingly close 
to the upper clouds. So we expect to see the uh, the atmosphere of Jupiter in, in, in detail that we've never seen before. And remember also, this, this is uh, a pol in a polar orbit rather than an equatorial orbit. So we'll see aspects of the atmosphere that we've never seen before. And uh, still speaking of spacecraft, uh, within the... Um, uh, solar observing and comet observing community, there was great rejoicing because they made contact with Stereo B again. Oh, that's Stereo fantastic. B, it's stunning. A Stereo B, uh, to remind your listeners, is a part of um, two satellites that are orbiting the sun, uh, which are examining the corona in, two, in, um, in three dimensions. So they each look at uh, different parts of the, of the, at the sun from different angles. So you can get a middle of a three-dimensional structure for the, the corona. And for comp aficionados, it's been a, uh, a joy because Stereo A and Stereo B have been catching a whole line of comets. Um, and uh, I'm a, a, a bit of a lapsed member of the Stereo Hunters, the group that uh, hunt comets in the Stereo Images. Um, but uh, so stereo, stereo, stereo B has been contacted again. It, uh, about two years ago, um, it, uh, the, both the Stereo A and Stereo B went behind the sun as seen from Earth. And so they, uh, they turned things off, uh, the satellites off into uh, waiting mode, waited for them to come around from the other side of the sun and then tried to turn them back on again. Yep. Stereo A came up, but Stereo B didn't. That's right. And meanwhile, NASA's got another... Uh, scheduled mission coming up called Solar Probe Plus, and apparently that's going to end up being the fastest um, spacecraft ever designed. It's going to reach orbital velocities exceeding 720,000 kilometres an hour. Yeah, that's pretty damn fast. Yeah. Now, the other thing, if our listeners want to catch up on Juno, seeing it's going into the science orbits, if they want to really zoom in on it, they can just go to Google and put in Juno science orbits and they'll get all the very latest news because we're in an era now, in this golden era of astrophysics, where all the news is coming online virtually as it happens. So the images from those science orbits will be going online pretty much straight away. So our listeners can do that. In fact, there's a, on the Juno webpage, there's a call for amateurs to do analysis of the Juno webcam images. So they've got a whole range of raw images coming out uh, for amateurs to um, have a play with and uh, do some, um, some some building. So that's so so that's quite interesting. Yes, and the amateurs now have moved into a new area called citizen science, and we've got a lot of projects. On Tuesday, we're talking to Dr. Julie Banfield, and she's part of the. Radio Galaxy Zoo team up in Canberra. So we'll be hearing all about citizen science projects in upcoming episodes. That will be fantastic. That's really interesting. And uh, I think there's a little bit of space in everyone's life for a bit of astronomical citizen science. Indeed. Thank you very much for speaking with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on and clear skies. Excellent. And thank you very much. Now, I can't recommend highly enough that you go to Google and find Ian's Astro blog. Just Google Astro Blogger. It's a wonderful blog and it's very up to date and it's got all the latest news and wonderful links. 
Here is the Astrophys News. The big news this week was the discovery of an exoplanet orbiting our closest neighbour, Proxima Centauri. And we're covering that in detail next week with Dr. Elizabeth Tasker from Japan. I did have a look at one article from rxiv.org and I didn't get much further than the abstract. Here it is. We analyse the evolution of a potentially habitable planet, Proxima Centauri b, to identify environmental factors that affect its long-term habitability. And what did I find in the abstract? I found 1. Significant probability, 5. Ifs, 1. May, 1. May not, 1. Possibly, and one could have. They conclude that water retention is the biggest obstacle for the planet's habitability. And the same applies for Earth, as our ever-increasing population puts pressure on limited fresh water supplies. There is always a rush to publish and catch the wave of a new discovery, but I think we're just going to have to wait for more actual data on Proxima b, but we can be confident that it is going to be getting plenty of scrutiny from our best instruments. This will be an ongoing story, and you can look forward to next week's episode with Dr. Tasker. Second report is from photographingspace.com. Now, we know we have quite a few astrophotographers who subscribe to Astrophys, so this one is for people who are just starting or just about to start some astrophotography. Four basic tips to get started can be found at tinyearl.com forward slash astro tips, all lowercase, all one word. Our third report is adapted from a story in InsideMedia.com by Richard Frost. SKA headquarters at Jodrell Bank secures go-ahead. Plans for a £16.5 million extension to Jodrell Bank in Cheshire in England, which involves creating a global headquarters for the Square Kilometre Array, SKA, multi-country radio telescope project, have been given the go-ahead. A cat from the Cheshire East Council has approved the application to construct a single-storey research and admin building to hold up to 135 staff, provide research and office space, as well as catering facilities for the organisation that will supervise the international effort to build and operate the world's largest radio telescope. Our fourth report is adapted from a story in cosmosmagazine.com by Angus Bessina, who is a science writer from Sydney, Australia. Galaxy, made up of 99.99% dark matter, brought to light. A galaxy 330 million light-years from Earth, called Dragonfly 44, is around the same mass as our Milky Way, but only a minuscule fraction of it is normal matter. The rest is dark matter. Normal or ordinary matter is what astrophysicists and particle physicists call baryonic matter. And this is matter that we can detect directly using optical or radio telescopes. Detecting and understanding dark matter has been difficult to say the least because it does not interact with electromagnetic force, meaning it does not absorb, reflect or emit light and passes right through regular matter undetected. In fact, Scientists have only been able to infer the existence of dark matter from the gravitational influence it has on baryonic matter. This is why galaxies are good places to look for dark matter. 
Astronomers can calculate the mass of a galaxy, the sum of dark matter and normal matter, by watching how quickly its stars move as they rotate around the galaxy. And really, this is not rocket science. It's basic arithmetic that a grade 7 student can do. If you want the nitty-gritty, the mass of a galaxy equals the square of the rotational velocities of the stars multiplied by the galaxy's radius, then divided by the gravitational constant. A galaxy with little normal matter but a hefty total mass indicates the presence of large amounts of dark matter. The galaxy Dragonfly 44, first spotted by the Dragonfly Telephoto Array, built by Van Dockham and co-author Roberto Abraham at the University of Toronto in 2014, was intriguing. Its stars were whirling round at an incredibly fast clip. Using Keck spectrographic Doppler analyses, Van Dockham and Abraham's team were able to determine that the mass of a galaxy is similar to that of the Milky Way, but the stars and other normal matter in Dragonfly 44 only account for a paltry 0.01% of that mass. We are going to hear more about this galaxy. Our fifth report is adapted from a story by Dr. Katie Mack and is beautifully written for cosmosmagazine.com. The Bright Side of Black Holes. They're key to the evolution of galaxies, writes Katie Mack. Over a billion years ago, two black holes in a distant galaxy, far, far away, spiraled together, rippling the very fabric of space. In December, those ripples reached the laser interferometer, gravitational wave observatory, LIGO, in the US, marking the second gravitational wave detection in history. As an aside, those whooping sounds at the start of every Astrophys podcast are the sounds of gravitational waves as detected by LIGO. And black holes were first considered in the 18th century by John Mitchell and Pierre Simon Laplace. Later, Albert Einstein predicted black holes in 1916 with his general theory of relativity, and the term black hole was first coined in 1967 by American astronomer John Wheeler, and the first one was discovered in 1971. Back to Astro Katie's story. Our own galaxy is teeming with black holes, hundreds of millions according to one estimate. The simplest way to make a black hole is to take a star many times as massive as the sun and wait several million years for it to run out of fuel. And when that happens, it will collapse in on itself. Read the rest of it on tinyearl.com forward slash ktmac2. That's numeral two. It's a great read. Our final report this week is from CentauriDreams.org. Yes, I know the name of a website makes it sound like some New Age rubbish, but I'm including it for two reasons. Firstly, it's about aliens, so it won't please Nadezhda. Secondly, it's about the Rathan 600 radio telescope we reported on in episode two about antimatter and the Russian Rathan 600, which will please Nadezhda. Just to refresh our memories, the Rattan 600 employs a ring of adjustable reflecting panels which can be angled to direct the radiation from any point in the sky to a central conical receiver. Although the ring is only 576 metres in diameter, 
and there is no solid structure, the overall effect of the arrangement is that of a partially steerable antenna with the resolving power of a 600 metre diameter dish, making it definitely the world's largest diameter individual radio telescope. Now, onto the story, first broken by Paul Glister, interesting SETI candidate in Hercules. SETI means search for extraterrestrial intelligence. A candidate's signal for SETI is a welcome sign that our efforts in that direction may one day pay off. An international team of researchers has announced the detection of a strong signal in the direction of HD 164595 in a document now being circulated through contact person Alexander Panov. HD 164595 is a G-type star very similar to our Sun, located in the constellation of Hercules, only 94.4 light-years from Earth. This detection was made with the Rattan 600 in Zelenchukskaya in Russia, not far from the border with Georgia in the Caucasus. No one is claiming that this is the work of an extraterrestrial civilization, but for SETI, it certainly warrants further study. Working out the strength of a signal, the researchers say the possibility of noise of one form or another cannot be ruled out and researchers are also considering the possible micro-lensing of a background source by HD 164595, but the signal is provocative enough that the Rattan 600 researchers are now calling for permanent monitoring of this target. The excitement of a SETI researchers comes from knowing there is an exoplanet orbiting this star. HD 164595b is a confirmed exoplanet with a mass of 16 Earth masses. A radio signal at 2.7 gigahertz has indeed been detected, but it is unknown which planet of that stellar system is involved, if any. They looked for it again last night using the Allen Telescope in Northern California and found ZIP. There you are. That one's for you, Nadezhda. That was the Astrophys News for 31 August 2016. See you next week. Radio Wave!